0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. First of all, I want to say this show, which is about translation, mainly literary translation, but also translation into subtitles and dubbing and stuff like that. This has been a lot of fun to prepare for. I wound up thinking about things that I wasn't expecting to think about. But yes, we consume a lot of things that are translated. Poems, novels, plays, movies. Quite frequently, we don't even really pay much attention to who did the translating. And I can guarantee you that most of the people who did the translating didn't get paid very much for their work, even though their work is intrinsic, intrinsic to our enjoyment uh, of whatever it is that we're consuming. So all of that will be explored today with people who do translate works for us to consume and enjoy after the news. I'm probably just saying that wrong, but I couldn't resist it. Our, today's show is about translation. It's about translation, I think, in a somewhat more serious and elevated context. But, you know, somebody's got to translate the monkeys' songs, too. I don't know who does that. Uh, I do know that we consume a tremendous amount of culture that is translated for us novels, poems, plays. We watch movies and now, sort of, you know, streaming series. That are translated out of Korean or Danish uh, for us. People have to do that work, and it's not just work; it's art in many cases. Uh, and we are, and when it's, we it should be said when it's done as work and not as art. Our ability to enjoy the same work doesn't really match up all that well. All right, I'll stop babbling. Uh, Let's start with our first guest, Jennifer Croft, a writer and translator who was awarded the 2018 Booker International Prize for her translation of Flights by Polish writer Olga Tokarczyk. I hope I said that reasonably well, not mangling it too much. She's also become kind of a leader in a movement for translators to to get their due in several different senses of that idea. Uh, And she is with us now. Hi, welcome to our conversation.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: So maybe we could just begin by talking a little bit about your approach to translation, uh, and, and we can use uh, Olga Tokarczyk uh, as an example. Um, it might even be interesting to talk about one of her first sentences. Uh, there's a first sentence uh, that could be um, translated as, It happens that God tires of his brightness and quiet. He sickens of infinity. Uh, it also could be translated as it happens that God is tired of his light and silence fainting him from infinity. Uh, but your process when you translate is obviously not to translate word for word, uh, not to do a strictly lexical translation, but to really try to understand what the author is trying to say and and how to get there uh, in, in a different language. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that and what you did with that particular line, too.
2: Sure. Yeah, so I, th- I have described in the past that, well, first of all, I should say that everyone's approach is very different. Mm-hmm. So every translator I know um, describes their process in a different way. And famously, there are so many metaphors for translation. So it can be, you know, um, compared to musicians or um, in film, like the director or the actor. People just choose different ways to go with it. But I've described... Um, feeling like I'm kind of swimming in a a cove when I'm reading the book that I'm going to be translating. Um, And I just fully immerse myself in it as much as that is possible. Try to think about, without really asking the author directly, because I don't want to know too much about how the work was created, but try to think about how it feels and how it might have happened, you know, if the author might have written it very, very quickly Um, And then I would translate in a similar fashion at a similar speed, or if the author might have been moving from town to town as she wrote it, as was the case in Olga Tokarczuk's Flights. Um, And I just, and I kind of tried to live inside the text for a little bit um, and get to know it as fully as possible. And then I come back up for air, maybe get back onto land. And then I just tried to recreate the book but I know it's it can't possibly be the same because it's now in a completely different context. We're on dry land, let's say. Um, and the English language and the American audience or even the UK audience or other English speaking audiences are expecting different things, editors are expecting different things. So there are all kinds of necessary differences. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be a lesser work in translation by any means. It just means it's a new thing. That has an intimate relationship with the first thing, so it's a kind of co-production with the author. Again, I often refer to these translations as our children that we, you know, that we made together.
1: Yeah, you know, just to backtrack a few sentences to the idea of it, it's not going to be a lesser work. There is, well, we should say that one of the things that you've become prominent for uh, is you announced, I think on Twitter, that you weren't going to take any jobs anymore if your name wasn't going to be on the cover uh, of the book, and and. Some of the pushback to that was, well, there are some people who kind of have a prejudice against a uh, a translated work and are less likely to buy a translated work. And so calling attention to it on the cover might be counterproductive. Um, maybe you could react a little bit to that idea.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, there has been that tendency in English in the past. Um, Robert Frost famously is quoted as saying that poetry is what gets lost in translation, Um, but I think that we've seen in the last few years a real sea change in terms of that attitude, and people have really been wanting to explore the world in whatever way they can, and been really eager for, as you mentioned also, um, streaming services. The popularity of uh, television shows from elsewhere is so high right now, and obviously films. And when you think about how film is made, And I also mentioned that as a possible metaphor for translation, everybody knows that it's a co-production, that it's a collaboration, and no one trusts the film less because it features a screenwriter and a director and some actors, right? So I think people are coming around to this idea that the author doesn't necessarily have to be this sacred, divine figure who has this unique inspiration that can only be communicated directly in one language to an audience. That doesn't really fit with today's world. And in today's world, people also don't want to be restricted by national borders. So I, I don't actually think that that is as much of an issue now as it may have been in the past.
1: Right. And we should say that, you know, in the current environment, I mean, not I mean, historically, there have been writers who people want to read and have to read in translation. Uh, you know, I mean, whether it's Garcia Marquez or... Uh, I'm trying to think of another good example from the past, but right now it's Elena Ferrante, it's Nausgaard, uh, it's Murakami. I mean, these are authors who, in the world of consumers of literary fiction in the United States, uh, are every bit as avidly consumed as just about any English language writer you can think of. So there's, one would think that, as you suggest, that that prejudice is melting away.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yes, as you say, there are, there are authors who are famously part of our canon we don't even really think about. But I do think it's important to get people to think about um, the fact that they do come from a different culture and a different language. So Tolstoy did not write in English. <laughs> it's important mm-hmm. that people know that.
1: Right. So I just want to come back to something you said before, because I think it might be possible for our audience to kind of skate past it. And it's really interesting it, to to explore a little bit more of a film analogy, analogy you know, that we've started if you, as a translator, you're kind of a method actor right? I mean, compared to maybe a lot of translators, you're a method actor, not only in the sense that you really try to somehow or other, you know, understand the, the text at an almost molecular level, but that, as you suggested, you actually try to recapture some of the experience that the source author had. Uh, I think in talking about, if the, you said something about if the author was writing in a hurry, I think you might be talking about your translation of an Argentine writer, Pedro Maral, uh, the woman from Uruguay, which he, he did that's write in a hurry, right. so you translated it in a hurry, right?
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. I did the first draft in something like ten days. Just kind of locked myself in a room and looked at a lot of photographs from. Um, so in that book, it's an Argentine man who travels by ferry to Uruguay, um, and I had taken a similar trip just a few months before starting that translation. So I looked at all my pictures, looked at a lot of other people's pictures, and just kind of listened to the music that he mentions in the book and wrote as fast as I possibly could. And then, of course, went back and fixed the things that needed to be fixed. But, but I do think that that kind of feeling a connection, whether imagined or real, with the author is essential. And I also, as I said, I don't I don't want to ask the author too many questions because I don't want to know, you know, like what they were wearing every day that they were work, or like what they had for lunch. Like I don't want it to go too far so that the translation becomes very bogged down with too many details that are not actually present in the original text. I don't want to add a bunch of layers um, that don't need to be there, but I do want to be as close as is humanly possible and intellectually possible to to the original process.
1: Right. And we should say one of the proofs uh, of translation pudding might be the author's reaction. The author in that particular case, the author of the woman from Uruguay, uh, wrote, she managed to keep uh, the intimate tone. Uh, this is what he wrote to the New York Times. The translation feels as if someone is talking to you, which is just what I wanted to do. So, I mean, that's going to feel pretty good to get that kind of feedback. Um, yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about sort of just sort of translation in general, uh, and and one of the thing one of the challenges you had or that you've discussed with Tokarchuk is sometimes just because of the way one language the 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 source language is as opposed to the target language. You could wind up with like too many words. One of the problems, the passage that I just described at the top of the show, uh, which you ultimately translated uh, in a different way, uh, you translated ultimately every now and then, God wearies of his own luminous silence and infinity starts to make him a little bit sick. But as you say, that's more words than Tokarczyk did. Not that there's any prize given out for doing that, but there are just sometimes times where you need more words in English uh, than you do in, in your source language
2: yeah, that's right. I mean, here it was it was really important to me to strike the right tone. So in that sentence that you read that that phrase, an infinity starts to make him a little bit sick is very conversational, of course. So instead of an infinity begins to nauseate him or whatever, which is fewer words, which in that sense more closely mirrors the Polish. It doesn't match the Polish um, in terms of how formal it is or how colloquial it is. And that's always such an important thing, especially at the beginning of a text, to kind of understand how the author wants to relate to her audience. And Olga is famously very accessible, even though she's also, of course, a Nobel laureate and very critically acclaimed. She's also beloved among um, initially of her Polish readers. She she always wins like the reader's prize that readers vote on um, and now around the world. But um, yeah, it just depends on the language. Polish is very con- condensed because of its grammatical structure. And Spanish is actually often more verbose <laughs> than English. So that the text tends to expand when I'm translating from a Slavic language. I've also worked with Russian and Ukrainian and it shrinks for me when I translate uh, from a Romance language. So you know, I I when I think that matters. So if I can tell that that the Polish author is trying to be very very concise and very dense, then of course I'll, I'll work hard to replicate that as much as I can. Um, but if it's just the structure of the language, then I don't I don't worry about it too much.
1: Right. As long as you mention the Ukrainian piece, we should say that uh, world events can influence the appetite for translation. There seems to be kind of a push right now. The New York Times has reported on this to translate more work by Ukrainian writers as interest in in that whole world and culture seems to escalate along with the conflict.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's a a kind of funny thing that happens. Um, A lot of us have been advocating for Ukrainian literature for quite some time. Um, my husband, Boris Streluk, has also been translating uh, a Ukrainian writer. He, who is Ukrainian-American, has been translating Ukrainian writers kind of his whole life. Um, and all of a sudden in the past few months, people, um, people meaning editors, really are interested in acquiring those, those works. So, you know, in a way, good news for Ukrainian literature. I don't think any of us um, would have wanted yeah, too, too <laughs> higher have price. Wanted it at this
1: cost. <laughs> yeah, too high a price to pay, but yes. So another part of this, and you've already, I think, kind of alluded to it in the case of Tarkarczyk, is a translator sometimes almost has to be a salesperson to the target language press, right? You have to convince publishers at times. I mean, nobody has to convince a publisher anymore to publish Elena Ferrante. But a lot of times, maybe even with an author like Tokarczyk, you've got to kind of carry that idea around for a while until you can find somebody who wants to do that project, wants to put it into print. Uh, maybe you can say a little bit about what that's like.
2: Well, and I think the Ferrante is an interesting example because it's such an unusual arrangement that Europa editions, the press that publishes those books has with its parent company, which is actually Italian. So in that case, um, you know, you have people reading the original and assigning those translations. But most often for translators who are working into English, we have to kind of play so many different roles. Um, we have to be the agent for for the author um, who probably doesn't have an agent the way that American authors Kind of always have to have. Um, it hasn't traditionally been as important for an author in Argentina or Poland um, to have to work with an agent. Um, so we ha- we are the ones who have to find identify the editors who might be interested, pitch it to them with uh, you know a sample and a report and so forth. Um, but we're also the ones who are acting as it's called scouting. Um we we're on the ground in those countries. We're finding the text in the first place. And then once it's published, um, you know, we're representing those authors, particularly when they can't really speak English well or at all. Um, we're representing them in the press and we're doing the interviews, we're doing the book launches. We're doing the social media for them sometimes. Um, so it 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 really is like, all kinds of different jobs um, in one. It's not just sitting at a computer and typing up a a text.
1: Um, I'm being told I can't ask you too many more questions (laughs) because we have two more guests coming. And that's too bad because I have a lot of questions I want to ask you. Just one nitty gritty one, which is uh, my understanding is that, that quite traditionally, a lot of translators were just paid a fee. Uh, a one-time fee, and that it kind of makes more sense when you really think about the creative process involved and particularly everything that you've described in the last 10 minutes or so, that they should participate in royalties, which I know is something you've also been advocating for.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think that's so important. So often as an author, I would receive something like 15% royalties. And that's a great incentive to me as an author to really promote the work I really want those books to sell obviously I would anyway but this rewards me for all of that additional kind of you know showing up at the bookstores and doing my twitter account and all of that Um, and also maybe motivates me to make sure my work is accessible and will sell and often unfortunately translators don't get don't see any of those profits and that just doesn't it doesn't make sense. And I think even from a business standpoint, if I were a publisher, I would want to incentivize the translator to promote the work as much as possible and, and to really you know, make sure they turn in a polished text. You don't want them to just be turning in the first draft because that, that'll ensure they get their fee. Um, you want them to really be invested in the success of this book.
1: So I have one more thing I want to ask you about, and it's really something we could do an entire show about, but I'm going to instead have you talk about it for about two or three minutes. And that is, you know, what is sometimes called linguistic uh, relativity or there's something called the the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which essentially argues that different cultures with different languages actually perceive the world or at least process the world's hunks and colors differently. Um, And... This uh, you know, bubbled up in particular, I think, as as we began to discover, or as scholarship began to discover, uh, the languages of indigenous people, Native American languages. For example, I think the Zunyi don't distinguish linguistically between blue and green. That's just one word. Um, but there's also the idea that German Romanticism is something that happened in German, you know, that, that Goethe is in German because, uh, and, and Romanticism exists the way it is, because it happened in the German language. Maybe you can say just a little little bit about that. that, uh, To what degree do you also have to sort of mediate that process the way a culture thinks as opposed to the way your target language thinks?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head when you introduced culture. I mean, it's very, it's impossible for me personally to um, disentangle culture from language. So For instance, I lived in Argentina for seven years, and I'm hoping to live there again, Um, and that's where my Spanish comes from. And I think for me, it's so important to have those seven years of cultural experience, so that I know kind of all of the context for contemporary Argentine writing, or as much of the context as um, as one can possibly learn as an outsider in that time. Um, And that way, I can really translate not just the words, but also I can be thinking about the facial expression of the character as they're saying those words. I can know if those words are cliches or if they are something strange that the person is saying. And I do kind of have more insight into ways of thinking that are more typical of my Argentine friends uh, and acquaintances than they would be here. Um, I don't know how reliant those ways of thinking are on Spanish because, you know, when you think about it, um, the culture of Spain would be pretty different from the culture of Argentina, which is pretty different from the culture of Mexico, et cetera. And those are all supposedly the same language. But but I do, I do kind of counsel my students to, if at all possible, to apply for a grant or work uh, abroad, find some way to go to the country that they want to translate from because they I do really think that that's important. It's also not just translating words in that sense. You have to be bringing over a whole, a whole culture in, so as filtered by one particular individual who is the author of that book.
1: All right. We have to stop there, reluctantly. Jennifer Croft is a writer and translator, awarded the 2018 uh, Booker International Prize for her translation of Flights by the Polish writer Olga Tokarczyk. uh, Translates in multiple different languages. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. We are going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to the first woman to translate The Odyssey. All right, so I'm very excited about this uh, part as well. Uh, we are—I should acknowledge—we're just not going to talk about it today. But probably the most contested and discussed translation of all time is the translation of the Bible, right? I mean, just there are so many different versions now, and so many different ways of approaching that. But right after that, probably are uh, some of the classic works, some of the uh, the two major epic poems of Homer. And you might even throw the, in the Aeneid by Virgil. Um, translating things of of ancient Greek is something that began in antiquity. Uh, Cicero is trying to translate Demosthenes and being Cicero going on and on about, you know, how good he was at it. Uh, a Horace uh, in Ars Poetica, talks about how he thinks poetry should be translated. So it's a long tradition, uh, and one of the exciting new people in that tra- trans- uh, in that tradition is Emily Wilson, professor of classical studies and the chair of the program in comparative literature and literary theory at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the, also an author and translator of works such as Homer's Odyssey. I might have said it wrong going into the break. She's uh, acclaimed as the first woman to translate the Odyssey into English. She's currently working on a translation of the Iliad, uh, uh, and she joins us now. Hi. Thank
3: you for having me. Hello. So it's,
1: this is all very exciting. Uh, and obviously these works uh, have been translated m- many times, uh, both the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, into English many times. Uh, and there's always, I think, a pretty good reason for doing it again. Uh, but what's your reason? Describe why you want to—this uh, is something you, you, one does not undertake casually. You're going to spend years doing
3: this. <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> yes, yeah, something that I've not spent— um, a bit over ten years doing both the Homeric poems. It's not something which I mean I wouldn't take on ten years of work for no reason, right? I think it's, it's worthwhile to ask you know why do it again? There have already been dozens and dozens and dozens of translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey already into English, let alone all the other other languages they've been translated into. For me personally, um, there were several reasons. One was that. Um, just in teaching these poems in translation to undergraduates, one of the things that really bothered me was that most of the most commonly read, the best-selling American and British translations into English were either in prose or in free verse, and I felt that my students weren't getting a sense of how rhythmical, how metrical um, these poems are, that they were based on long oral tradition, and they had this clear rhythm where if you read them out loud, you can feel that rhythm. Even if you're not thinking about meter, you just feel it in your body when you you say those words. So I wanted to use a very, very regular meter throughout these epics rather than use free verse or prose. And I also wanted to just bring out ways that they are both simple and complex in ways that I felt weren't always getting across in the other translations that were most commonly read.
1: This is sometimes talked about as uh, the poet Joseph Brodsky, who Translates his own stuff, but he says you should find the first thing a translator should do is try to find some kind of metric equivalent, if possible. If you're translating verse, if you're translating poetry, find something that has basically the same rhythm, if you possibly can. Uh, I'm blocking the name of the Irish poet who said, It's not translation if you just get the words but lose the music. That's what you're really talking about, right? Is preserving the music.
3: Preserving or recreating something about the music, because in a way, that's one of the paradoxes of translation, right? That you can't actually preserve anything. None of the translations are in any, they don't have any words of ancient Greek. So, what exactly does it mean to preserve? It's about reconstructing something which is in some way or other the same while also being completely different. But I but certainly, then the sonic qualities, both the the rhythm, the meter, and also the the prevalence of alliteration, especially in Homer, seems to be crucial for getting a sound that might be in some way like the sound of the original.
1: Right. So, I mean, another thing about this is because... Because of what translation is, there are like lots of different ways of translating maybe the same set of words. Uh, I was reading an essay today by Maynard Mack where uh, he goes through uh, a six-word passage in the Iliad and then shows us 11 different ways uh, that it has been translating, starting with Chapman and ending with Fagels. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, every single one is different. Every single uh, interpretation of those six words is different. I think also because the translator is imputing maybe a slightly it's Andromache talking to Hector. Uh, maybe that each one is imputing a slightly different, I don't know, personality and interpretation mm-hmm. of that moment. Maybe you could say h- how you feel about all that.
3: I think as well, one of the things that's so exciting and also so difficult about translation is that every single element of it is a decision, a choice, an interpretation. And yet it also has to all hang together as an interpretation. It has, it has to be that you wrestle over both what does this particular word mean in this sentence and then also how can I make the whole passage work so that in that scene, the the reader, the listener is going to fully understand who is this character. What does it feel like to be Andromache when you realize the husband on whom you depend is, is going to insist on going off and getting himself killed? What does it feel like to be the husband in that scene? Then you have to both be thinking through How do I think these characters are interacting with each other? And also, what does that sentence sound like? And there's both the macroscopic and the the microscopic elements of it all the time.
1: There's Yeah, and as a result, yeah, you might, uh, you know, Fitzgerald says, Oh, my wild one. You, yes. you know, Fagel says reckless one, which is different from wild one. And and so ultimately you are, you're making psychological judgments all, all the time. You you have no choice but to. Yes.
3: Uh, Listen, I'm we haven't talked about this scene in particular, but so that, that particular word, I think those are both renditions of a, I think, quite difficult to translate Greek word, which is daimonios. Mm-hmm. And it's often used in Herma in the vocative daimonia. Um And it's related to daimon, which is the word we get demon from. And it means some kind of divine spirit, but it's also very often used when somebody's expressing some surprise at how you're acting. Why are you being so weird? Um, and I and of course, why are you being so weird would make the register sound perhaps too colloquial for the register of Homer. But there needs to be some suggestion of it's not just there's an element of you might be possessed by something. But there might be something strange about you, and maybe you're being an alien. Maybe there's something weird about. And I, and I can't. I remember my current draft says for that for that use in that scene. I know that in the in the scene in the Odyssey where Penelope and Odysseus are recognizing each other for the final for the for the sort of climactic moment in that poem, um, they also use that word. They're addressing each other as daimonios, Diomenea, saying how strange you are, There's something extraordinary about you. And there's that that element of recognition where you're also saying this person is unfamiliar to me at this moment of familiarity. And it's very difficult because there's no equivalent in terms of the religious connotations. We don't believe in daimons or the Olympian deities. So our, our language is also related to all these different cultural beliefs that are different.
1: Right. We're back to that whole idea of linguistic relativity. The language reflects the way people understand their reality. So, you know, I was talking to Jennifer Croft about how, you know, you don't want to wind up with too many words. Uh, And and Greek... I, I'm a washed-out, failed student of ancient Greek. I lasted my uh-huh. last one semester of college. But Greek, you know, obviously, has ancient Greek has some interesting conventions to it, including this idea of particles. You know, particles, for people who are listening, I'm sure you could explain it better than I can, but they're almost like emoji or LOLs at times. Yes. There's like these little two-letter words that might mean something like, in a manner of speaking, or I expect you to agree with the next thing, <laughs> yes. or something like that. Well, you can't put that in, particularly if you're going to try to write, you know, in iambic pentameter. Uh, so mm-hmm. how do you deal with all the, all of that, all the ways in which ancient Greek is really different from English?
3: It's really different, yes. That's such a good question. It's a good question also in in relating that to the questions of pacing, because of course, um, a text, and especially a literary text, especially a poem, it has sonic qualities. It has character qualities. It also has the particular speed at which things happen is part of the literary quality, the the the, way, the 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 essence of the text is to do with how long does it take to say something. If you clog the text up with for indeed, however, thus it can be said that blah, 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 indeed, by trying to translate every single particle with a awkward little phrase in English, it's going to end up being really hideous and also just take too long and be very boring. Um, I think the crucial thing is just to think about how do the, how do the particles work in terms of emphasis. Mm-hmm. And it might well be that as long as you can get the word order right in English, the emphasis is going to be heard by the English listener or English reader, even if you don't actually translate every word and it might be that in English, we might do it more by word order than by necessarily having quite as many particles. Um, I think there were similar questions about the fact that in Homer there were so many compound epithets, so many words which are um, coined from two different words fused together. Which, of course, is something that many many languages do that more than English does. German does it more, much more and much more than English does. Whereas if I have, I think I can get away with a few winded C's, but I can't necessarily fuse together quite as many words as in, as, in English as Greek can naturally do.
1: OK, you're reading my notes over my shoulder, my shoulder, because because uh, I was going to ask you about wine, dark sea, because that, that's yeah. an, that's one of these things that is just debated forever. I mean, you know, yeah. did, did the water look different? Is there some uh-huh. kind of linguistic construction that we don't understand here? Uh, you know, I mean, is this linguistic relativity? Uh, so, I mean, that's an example of a phrase that everybody knows, the wine, dark mm-hmm. sea, but nobody really quite knows what it means. I do. Did you have to come up with your own theory about that?
3: No, I didn't feel that I had to come. over well, the theory I would feel that in fact leaving some things resonantly um, open is important. Um, I mean, the original "Oin up upon John," it's, it's. I think it's partly about the sound. It sounds really cool, and, it, <laughs> and it's conventionally translated as "wine dark," but it doesn't actually necessarily mean dark. It means "wine faced" or "wine looking." Mm-hmm. What exactly does wine look like, and how might the look of wine or the eye of wine? be like, like the look of the sea, I think the reader kind of has to figure that out for themselves and think about how might wine and the sea be related in this plant.
1: So there's ways in which, uh, as we say, Greek is very different from English. We should talk a little bit about English, too. And English is, uh, as languages go, an unstable currency. It's changing all the time. Uh, I was listening today, to getting ready for the show, to the, the trans, I think it's, his name is Oliver Taplin, uh, talking about uh, translating Sophocles and referring to bird noises. This is years ago, he used the word Twitter. And he said, I mm-hmm. would not be using that word yeah. right now, <laughs> because it just means <laughs> yes. something very different. So could you talk a little bit about that, to what do are you translating this into the, like you're translating the Iliad right now into the English of 2020, uh, 2022, uh, or are you trying to create some kind of timeless English?
3: Yes, there isn't a timeless English, right? That doesn't exist. I mean, that, whatever English I choose is going to feel dated in 50 years, of course. And whatever I do, there's no way if, there's no way to prevent that. Um, all, all language exists within its own time. And yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't use Twitter and i was also conscious that there were some words, that I, um, I mean, I was thinking about surfing and how the, the idea of surf, um, it doesn't necessarily imply a surfboard, but then in some contexts in, mo- in modern English, maybe it does, um, you don't necessarily want the wrong conversations. I think there are differences between um, the idea of English, which has a particular sense of how, how contemporary it might be versus how slangy it is. And those are related, but not quite the same kind of, kind of challenge. I think if you use a lot of slang, the text is going to date de- extremely quickly. So ideally, I, I don't want to use too many words that are going to sound like the language that my 13-year-old would use. Because I, I know that teenage slang really does date very, very fast. And also is the wrong register for the kind of epic, epic grandeur that there should be an element of that in BOMA.
1: Well, you know that's a path that can lead us to and and i I apologize in advance for asking such a trite question, but there there are of course are debates about whether or not Homer is one fixed person. Um, you're in a unique and rather intimate position right now with Homer um, and so you know you were talking just now about you know things that would or would not be appropriate, probably appropriate for homer's purposes. I don't know, do you feel like you're dealing with one person or some kind of amalgamation?
3: I certainly wouldn't talk about Homer's purposes or intentionality in the case of this text. I mean, I think no matter what we think about how did how did we get from a centuries long oral tradition, which this, these poems are certainly based on, a centuries long oral poetic tradition, which involved the development and sort of instantiation within the tradition of particular phrases and as well as, well as characters, stories, um, mythic elements, um, all of that means that even if there was one person who dictated the monumental poems at some point or other towards the end of that tradition, once, um, once the Greek alphabet had come into existence, that um, it still doesn't mean it was all completely made up out of out of their own head by that person. I think it's quite likely that there was some kind of collaboration. I mean, one of the possible theories is that... Um, there was an oral singer, and there was also some kind of dictation. So, so maybe there was a collaboration between somebody who was literate and somebody who wasn't literate. Um, but I also think, on some level, it's unknowable. And there were there were also multiple theories about how much were these poems still in flux even after they had been written down. Were, was were they still being changed and adapted over the course of multiple singings and retellings, even once they were more or less complete?
1: So we have to stop there, although I'm just, I am just find this work so exciting, and I find this conversation very exciting, too, uh, and I love the way that you think about this. One of the anecdotes I stumbled over today is that Robert Browning at one point did a translation of some play by Aeschylus and got so far away from the material that one of his contemporaries yeah. said, it's a good thing we have Aeschylus to tell us what Browning is thinking about. Uh, <laughs> yes. So you don't want to be that person, and you certainly are not. Uh, so very exciting to talk to you, Emily Wilson, a professor of classical studies, chair of the program in comparative literature and literary theory at the University of Pennsylvania. We already have her odyssey. We're getting ready to devour her Iliad. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. All right. So I hope you're having as much fun as I am listening to this. Um, and I have to thank Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, getting everything done for us today. Uh, this the show idea came from Lily Tyson, our senior producer, who produced this particular episode as well. Uh, and I have to say, all day long, I've been having so much fun just reading more about this and trying to understand it um, more than I, than I do. Uh, so we're going to switch gears here a little bit, move away from strictly literary translation and towards a translation that probably you consume a little bit more often, particularly these days in the age of streaming, where there's just so much content sitting there inside your television waiting to get out. But an awful lot of it was not originally performed in English, and that's where a different kind of translator comes in. Joining us now, Denise Kripper uh, is a translator uh, and a translation editor for Latin American Literature Today and an associate professor of Spanish at Lake Forest College. Welcome to our conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And it's also so good to be in the show with Jennifer and Emily, to translators our like DP at Meijer.
1: All right. That's that's so nice to hear. So maybe describe a little bit uh, the work that you've done in, in translating for either film or television.
0: Yeah. So back when I was in Argentina, before starting my PhD, I made a living as an audiovisual translator. So basically doing both subtitling and dubbing. Um, this was um, almost a decade ago now, and there weren't uh, streaming platforms like we have now. So I would translate these shows for different uh, networks and channels uh, in Argentina. So mostly translating from English into Spanish.
1: And uh, mention some of the shows that you translated.
0: Um, Rock from the Sun, The Office, La Britain. They also have like a music channel. So weirdly enough, concerts too will get, tra- you know, subtitles. Uh, you know, thank you for coming. It was a great show, things like that. Uh, movies. Uh, Back then, it was uh, strange getting maybe a whole season of a show. You would get like random episodes here and there, which, you know, has its own set of challenges for for translators working on the same show. Uh, But yeah, those are just some of the highlights, I would say.
1: So a number of the things that you mentioned were comedies and comedies uh, are are notoriously difficult to translate at times anyway <laughs> because they depend on certain kinds of wordplay and homonyms and kind of misunderstandings that occur between two people in a specific language. So how do you handle that?
0: Exactly. Well, it's difficult <laughs> and it's a challenge, but it's also fun and I would say it is specifically challenging for subtitles because you're very much limited by the length of you know, the two little lines that you see below on the screen, right? So sometimes you would have the perfect pun or the perfect in words, And if it doesn't fit those two lines, then you cannot use it. Uh, thankfully there's a lot when you are dealing with audiovisual translation, there's a lot that is dependent on the image. So sometimes you don't have to translate everything necessarily on those two lines. Your spectator will still understand certain jokes just by looking at what, at the action, at what's happening. So that really helps a lot.
1: Um, it's my vague and very, uh, for the most part, ignorant impression that dubbing is regarded differently in different countries, you know, and that there are some countries where where dubbed uh, products, dubbed uh, film and television is really, you know, valued and prized. And even in some cases, the actors who do the dubbing become well known in their own right for their terrific work being Leo DiCaprio or something. Uh, <laughs> and, and there are other places where it's like, I ah, know I don't like that. I'd rather have Subtitles. Uh what's been your experience with that?
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I come from Argentina and I would say we prefer subtitles. Subtitles will be the norm there. Uh if you were going to the movies, you would have to check specifically where the screening for the dub version of a movie would, would uh be on. Uh while in a country like Spain, dubbing is more the norm. And I remember years ago the shock of going into uh a movie theater and listen you know hearing brad pitt speak with this thick spanish accent right i was not used to it i was hoping to get a subtitled version there's actually a great documentary called being george clooney about this very uh thing you just mentioned all these actors dubbing george clooney into french and turkish and how you know their voice is very much recognized as george clooney's voice in those languages right so highly recommend that um
1: Right. There's also, I think, a video, it's one of the songs from Wicked, where uh, where everybody sings it in the language that they sang it for in the recording, uh, and that you see all of their faces, you know, and it's sort of done almost as a Zoom or something. It's really kind of terrific uh, to, to look at that. But yeah, I mean, so you're not only a translator uh, for subtitled and, and dubbed work, but you're a consumer of it, too. So what's your... I know you've been watching Pachinko lately, for example, on Apple <laughs> TV. So... Uh, dubbing or subtitles
0: yeah well I I, first of all I want to say that they you know both have the capacity to really make a show shine and it's you know there's a lot of personal preference involved in this I would say you know dubbing allows you to watch the film without having to read subtitles it doesn't take as much of an effort but you're also missing some, you know, the original voices of those actors. Like imagine watching The Godfather without hearing Marlon Brando's, like, really characteristic voice, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, subtitles also have you know other um, benefits, right? Then uh, you know, you mentioned Pachinko, which I just uh, watched on Apple TV, based on me uh, James Lee's, um great novel, and the the both the novel and the show are uh, set in Korea and Japanese, and they They've done something really clever with the subtitles. Um, characters will switch back and forth between languages, or one character will speak uh, in Korean, and another one in Japanese. And there's a lot of significance uh, depending on which language they're speaking, right? So what Apple TV uh, did was have the Korean subtitles appear in yellow, and the Japanese subtitles appear um, in uh, blue. So you can see when a character is code switching. If there's a specific word they are saying in the other language. If they are addressing someone specifically in one language, but then you know talking to someone else in another language. So you know I think that was a really clever way to portray something that is super important to the plot of both the show and the and the novel that you really couldn't have done uh, with dubbing.
1: Also, I think at least my very limited experience of Japanese is that it. I was actually traveling around Japan at one point with somebody who spoke it way better than I did. And at one point she turned to me and she said, in this country, you don't speak to people, you sing to people. Uh, And and there is a sense in which sort of tone, you know, is really, really important in Japanese, the the actual pitch of certain words. And and that is something that would, I think, get lost a a, a little bit if you were to dub English uh, over what was actually spoken.
0: Right, yeah, that difference will be glossed over. And I also think that, you know, I have no experience with either Korean or Japanese, but you know, seeing all the season, the first season of Pachinko and by having that cue of the different color in the subtitle, now I'm getting better at sort of realizing when they're switching languages and you know, that's something that I just learned watching the show and you know, about tone and about certain ways of, you know, addressing people respectfully and things like that that you know, relate so much to those cultures that I've been just learning through the subtitles or the, hel- the help of the subtitles in making me understand the show and the power dynamics in the, in the show better.
1: You know, uh, because of everything that we're talking about, because of all the streaming of international stuff, there is obviously a tremendous need for translators. Although what I'm reading anyway is that it's harder to hire those kinds of translators. Uh, You you have a university gig. um, Maybe you can squeeze in a little (laughs) translating here and there. But to do it for a living, apparently it's really hard to do because they just don't pay that much.
0: Uh yeah that that's true i think um translation well it, translation is so broad that if you're doing like medical translation if you're doing interpreting if you're doing business translation you can certainly make a living out of that and i was making a living doing audiovisual translation back in argentina too literary translation might be a little bit harder uh but i guess one of the good things about sort of this you know the the prescience um presence of uh um, you know, foreign shows, Netflix or other platforms, is that people are realizing that there's such a need for translators, right? Then one of the things about the U.S. is that you don't have translation training programs. Then, you know, in terms of teaching translation, that's something that is wonderful to see in the last few years. There's been more, um, you know, language programs and literature programs engaged in the teaching of translation precisely because this is this is a, a need that we're seeing. And, you know, we have so many bilingual students already and the changing in demographics um, also help in, you know, um, you know seeing translation as a, as a new form of uh, or professional development, right? And, and of course, uh, this needs to be recognized and paid properly. And so I have a high hopes that, um, you know, this is gonna happen and people will be interested in, you know, making a living out of translation. That would Certainly be good. Certainly can be
1: done. Yes, absolutely. We have to stop there. It's fascinating stuff. Denise Cripper, thank you so much. Translator, translation uh, editor for Latin American Literature Today and an associate professor of Spanish at Lake Forest College. Thanks to the rest of you for listening. And bye-bye now.
0: Is French is the language you speak when you don't want to speak to me. Some blue, some nervous, some that makes a lot of sense. As long as we're not talking anymore, might as well do it.